Dustin and Tony, we're back. <laughs> Space Junk Podcast, award-winning, globe-trotting trio. Actually, there's only two of us. I don't know why I said trio. Award-winning. <laughs> yeah, you just say it. People believe it. <laughs> yeah, that's right. If you say it enough, it's true. I mean, a yeah. lot of people we that start are famous to these it, days. Other people believe it. That's um, the world we, we live in. Giving yeah. ourselves awards. Let's say that. That's right. That's the world we live in. If you say it enough times, it's it's the truth. So <laughs> <All right. laughs> we, might have, we might have a guest today too. I just heard you call your dog Cookie. Is that that's her name? That yes. Name? Yeah. <laughs> <Cookie>. <laughs> um, yeah. She's okay, a, so. she's a five month old brown lab, and I love her to death. But I am never in a million years getting another puppy. Uh, this is, wow. This is, this was hard work. So puppies are great. She's a smart dog and everything, but oh my God. Yeah. And there's quite a few names that are options, but yeah, cookie's a good place to land. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, we, we call her that just because the person we got her from the, the, the place of the guy, we, we drove up to Georgia, uh, somebody had a bunch of them and, uh, that was what okay. they named her. So we just kept it. I wanted to yep. call her cotton because she has this little tuft of white fur on her chest, yeah. but yeah, everybody yeah. said that was racist. And so I was like, what do you mean? That's racist. It's just cotton. So we decided to be, I don't know. I'm not getting yeah. into all that. So we didn't name her cotton is the, is the long story of that. Okay. So today I've been asking you guys since we've been, we came back from our uh, recording hiatus a few months ago, just let me know what you want to talk about on the show. You know, well, you know, what are some interesting things? And I've been storing up a lot of feedback. You guys have been really great. Uh, Paul, you've been emailing me. And then, of course, there's been a lot of people uh, on the uh, Discord server who also have a lot of ideas and some comments. And we'll try to get to some as many of those as we can today. But the big one that I want to start off with comes from Uncle Bill on the Discord server. And he, I'm going to read his question and then... Uh, uh, we can get into it a little bit better. Um, good. He's Do going it. optical tube assembly slash mount package offerings versus buying them separately and going and probably going over and probably going over engineered on the mount to accommodate the extra weight of accessories. For well over 30 years, I have insisted that manufacturers were under engineering the mounts to keep those packages cost competitive. Bare, which he says are barely usable out of the box and completely worthless once we try to piggyback cameras and other gear onto the optical tube assembly. This is one reason, he adds parenthetically, uh, this is one reason I so admired Tom Pickett building his dream system gradually from the ground up with a super beefy tack mount over a year before he was ready to buy his OTA gear. So let's talk about that a little bit. The We've all seen the packages. I mean, you know, you can buy LX two hundreds, Meads with the clock drive and the tripod. Certainly, C eights are venerable and have been around for decades doing that. Um, but since we've got Dustin here, he's like the guy, the expert on this topic. Let's 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 just go into it, man. Let's talk about this. What do you? I know you've thought about it. I know. What do you tell your customers when they come to you with similar 
concerns. Yeah, yeah, I've been on both sides of it, right? I mean, we we obviously sell all the products that are being discussed here. Um, and for a long time, I think that every, his assessment is not only fair, it's it's spot on for, you know, the past. I wouldn't say it's as true today just because over the last really, I don't know, five years, I guess we, we bought OPT what, seven, eight, it all runs together, seven or eight years ago. That sounds about right. My my timeline is broken. I have no idea how long. (laughs) I know all of ours. Yeah. yeah, Some time ago, but probably the last five-ish years are when everything really started changing and prices have come down substantially to where you can get world-class, you know, products for 70, 80% less than it would have cost you five, 10 years ago. Um, You know, for instance, let's say, you know, the camera I have on my observatory was $15,000 at the time that um, the company sent it to me uh, to use out there. And it's a 16 megapixel camera, medium format, nine micron pixels. Like it's a great camera. And it was the gold standard for a long time. It's called a 1603 CCD. Um, Today, people have switched to cameras like the QHY 600, the ZWO6200, which uses a Sony CMOS sensor, which if you'd have asked me five years ago, probably if you'd have asked me three years ago, I'd have said, it's never going to take the place of these CCD chips. But when we've compared the data side by side, um, I mean, even though the math doesn't work out on paper, the data just looks better in a lot of cases, depending on the application um, with the the other camera. And that camera is about $4,000 $4,000 or $3,000. So, um, you know, you're looking at a better, a 60 megapixel camera for $3,000 with a higher quantum efficiency. Basically, it's just a more capable camera compared to what did exist for $15,000 and then plus much, much more expensive filters five years ago. And you're seeing that trend. I'm using that one example, but you're seeing that trend through all of the equipment in the industry telescopes, you know, Apos. I mean, you remember Apos used to be the kind of thing where if you had one, you wore like a necklace around. It just told everybody like, I own an Apo. Mm-hmm. You were an mm-hmm. Apo person because they were so incredibly expensive. Apo yeah. refractors. Um, and while they still aren't, you know, the cheapest telescopes around, it's like, man, you can get an incredible Apo for under $1,000 now. People would have laughed at you five, 10 years ago if you said that. You know, mm-hmm. so I think that um, he's right. He's right that um, things used to be engineered, and I get why that happens. And to explain why that happens, this is it. It's um, it's a hobby industry, right? It's a you have a a lot of very small companies making big things happen. Basically, very small companies running the entire industry, each one controlling like a little piece of the production of what it is that makes up the whole industry. In this case, the sum of it does equal or the, you know, the sum of all these smaller companies and efforts equal the whole of what the industry is representing. And then obviously, you know, there's this bigger love for it that comes from everybody that, that gets to experience that, but it is really small companies doing it. And it's low margin because the stuff has, you know, through history been very expensive. Um, I mean, making these products is not simple, Getting them to perform well is obviously more challenging. Photography has evolved in the time that this hobby has been going from something that was done entirely on film and damn near impossible to do well. I know that you've had experiences, Tony, with film photography for Astro, which is like for the people that did it, I tip my hat to them because it's it's it really is right on the line of impossible to do well um, to something that's digital and fully automated. Um but through that, you've seen companies evolve with it. And so 
very low margin. And that's that's really been the case for most of the companies because they try to keep the price down because it's a mission-driven industry, which is bring people in, get them involved, and share this experience, right? And and so if if most, if not all of the companies are sharing that mission, they can't go out and manufacture something for a hundred dollars and sell it for a thousand, right? It has to be keeping costs down as low as possible because otherwise the barrier for entry becomes too large. And then you're not you're not sharing your mission. You're not, you know, really exploring what's possible inside that mission. And so um by definition, it's like its own internal forced price compression because the mission overpowers the profit margin for a lot of companies. And, and with that, they have to limit, you know, everybody wants to build the best that's out there and has forever, but you can't, you can't make a $10,000 mount for a thousand bucks, you know? And so when they're trying to keep the price down, there have been cost cutting measures and in the past and that stuff made the mounts less capable than they probably needed to be for astrophotography. Um, but I just, now that astrophotography dominates the industry, I, I think that statement is true for the past. It's not true for the present. So for a company like Celestron or Mead, I'm going to use the old, the old school because from the 60s, well, from the 70s, 80s, and 90s, it was really Celestron and Mead, right? Those were your two big behemoths in the in the in the hobby. Sure. So for a company like them that, and they sold, um, complete systems, right? You got an LX 200, a 10 inch Schmidt Cassegrain system. It had the clock drive attached. It had the tripod and you got an equatorial wedge. You could buy that extra with the C eight. All of that stuff was the same. And it was true for decades that that's what you bought. Did, and they, you could special order, just the mount if you wanted that in fact uh, an astronomer friend of mine uh, tim brown from the high altitude observatory ordered a mead lx oh god it was the it was the big one uh the, the biggest uh smear cast they made ordered just the mount for that so that he could put his ota on it but it was a special order it didn't you know mead yeah. had to accommodate that order it wasn't something he could click on a website well back then websites weren't really there but you know you, you couldn't just say i want this mount so do they, these companies that were offering complete things, mounts, tripods, uh, OTAs, were they manufacturing it all themselves? You said that the hobby now is such that it's all one manufacturer does one thing, profit margins are tight, but and together they all you know make really, really good things. Do those companies back in those days, was that true? Yeah, I think that, uh, and what I mean by that is that there's, there's, so many small companies start in this industry because of the love for the hobby. It's not, people don't flock to this because they see that's a high margin industry. I can go there make a ton of money and then get out. That's not, I, in fact, I've never seen a company in this industry that, that that's that way, you know? Right. And so what I mean is that if, if you have a love for this hobby and you're getting into it, you're getting into it to share it. You're getting into it to create products that you feel like can elevate the experience or elevate, you know, the um the retention in the hobby because when people get frustrated they leave they put the telescope in the closet and they never do it again i mean i've seen so many people with oh, the sure. little amazon yeah. telescopes you see that have the hand crank equatorial mounts man that's mm -hmm. a one-time use telescope you know yeah. and um because they're gonna get frustrated they're not gonna experience anything it's gonna be shaky it's not gonna be even the moon is gonna be a pain to try to find you know and so people get into it to try to really elevate the experience 
And so that's what I mean by, by, you know, forced intentionally forced price compression. It's like you have people that are willing to build these products and I'm not saying there's not a margin. These are businesses. These are businesses and many businesses have done very well. Um, but it's not by just going out and creating like, like what energy drinks do where they're like, Hey, we're going to make this for three cents and sell it for $3. <laughs> you know right. I mean? Right. We're going to sell 10 million of them at a time. Um, instead you have companies that are really trying to innovate, push the boundaries and that's how they stay competitive. And I think that that's caught up. So to your question about the, like the 16 and the 20 inch mounts that used to exist and they were custom order, those things were made. And I think what happened was photography used to be the thing that some people did, but astronomy was a visual hobby. And so the companies responded by making visual systems and then people that had an interest in photography would adapt those systems based on their capability to be photography systems. Um, that's not the case anymore. And it's an important distinction because now photography systems are manufactured from scratch. They're designed to be photography systems. And so when you get them, they perform at photographic levels. They perform where if you're going out with the intention of capturing something without star trails and guiding for 10 minutes at a time, it's going to do that. It used to be that people would say, well, I have this ability, I have this expertise that I can take this visual system that was designed to do visual and make it do photography. Um, but it wasn't necessarily what it was designed to do. And so when it had its shortcomings, it was of no, no fault of the manufacturers. They just, this, the limits were being pushed a little bit beyond their capability because they were being pushed beyond what they were designed to do. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah, I in fact I'm as you I was I was thinking back to my experience with the C8 that I had bought back in the day that when I wanted to do that film uh on it I had I bought the uh the prime focus or not the uh the projection focus adapter that actually put the eyepiece in the optical tube and you actually projected the eyepiece onto the film that added yeah. a good 3 or 4 inches to the back then you put in a big heavy Canon film body on it uh all of that added a big lever to the back so what you then had to add was screw on counterweights to the front of the optical exactly. tube assembly because it, and it was all definitely an afterthought you could tell well we can make this telescope do that but you got to buy all this weird stuff and by the time you're done with your c8 sitting on a fork mount and your tripod you've got this ungainly looking wobbly thing that sure as heck was strained in terms of it. It was at its limits in terms of stability. Uh, in fact, you were way over it. It was like you could breathe on yeah, it. The it's, whole it's thing would shake. Like we the question wasn't what, what does it do? Well, what was it designed to do? The question is how far can we push it? Yeah, right? That's and, what you were doing back in the day. Yeah. And then you bump up against the limits and you're like, Oh, this thing can't do this. But it's mm -hmm. like, yeah, no, it's not. It's not designed to do that. And in fact, a lot of the technology that we're dependent on today to get the results that astrophotographers are getting didn't exist. I mean, the vast majority of it didn't exist. So I think is those were the pioneers, the people we're talking about that were pushing the boundaries and making and dealing mm -hmm. with all that frustration and hanging counterweights off the front and all that stuff. It's like, yeah, they were the pioneers. They're the reason that we can do it today. But I don't think it's the manufacturers or the equipment's fault where it had its shortcomings 
when it wasn't designed to do that in the first place. Yeah. Okay. So nowadays, now fast forward into modern times, we have many more telescope manufacturers than just Mead and Celestron. We've got Skywatcher and, and, uh, you know, lots of other, you know, Teleview, I think has their own complete systems. Nowadays, they, it, the complete systems that you buy from these places, like the Skywatcher Dobsonians, which I have one of, is, is, is an amazing complete system. Um, I can't imagine it needing to add anything to that. Um, what about comparing today? The, is, are there any disadvantages or advantages to building your own from scratch? Like, let's say I want to buy this mount, put this OTA on it, put this camera on it with this power supply or whatever, uh, versus buying one that's off the shelf from Orion or uh, one of the manufacturers that exists now. Yeah, the, the highest end systems are still um, the ones that are built from scratch. They're the people saying, I'm going to go out, I'm going to pick the right camera for what it is I want to do. Um, I'm going to pick the right mount for exactly what I'm trying to do. And I'm going to pick the right telescope for exactly what I'm trying to do. And then all the accessories to match, right? Um, right. There are a handful, and when I say a handful, very, very small number of manufacturers that even make just the mounts and the telescopes. Very small number that produce both that can be used at a photographic level. There are some, you know, Celestron's included in that, obviously plane wave um, and others, but the vast majority don't, they specialize in one thing. And, um, and in that one thing, they're, they're very, very good. Um, but I think that what most people look for is they say, what is it exactly I'm trying to do? This is, we're talking about photography. If you're talking about visual astronomy, then it's different. There are multiple uh, companies that make things you can spend a lot less money and put an eyepiece on something and have a really, really enjoyable experience. Um, but photography, you really have to be selective about not only your camera, but the lens that you're using and for what application. You can have a, a $10,000 system that takes terrible, terrible pictures if you're using it for the wrong application, uh, you know, or that's just a big paperweight if you're using it for the wrong application. Um, where the opposite is also true. You can have a $1,000 system that absolutely is taking world-class images um, because you've just fine-tuned everything for a specific type of shot, right? And so I think that's, that's where a lot of the money comes in is developing versatility. It's not like, like if you know I only want to do planetary, you can only buy the things at a lot less money that just do planetary extremely well. But, you know, if you're wanting to do some planetary and some deep space images of very distant galaxies and some really wide field nebulae, you know, there's, there's more cost associated with that. Just like there would be if it's regular photography and you want to do portrait photography and you want to do weddings and landscapes and everything else, you're going to end up developing, developing a photography bag full of lenses and different bodies and things along that, you know, along that line. So, um, yeah. That's yeah, just, that's just part of the hobby is really like defining what it is you're trying to do and then matching the system to that. So would you say that most people in your experience, because when I think about this, when I think about trying to build your own system, which will be super awesome, like, you know, what, um, what Tom Pickett did and, and Bill's example, Uncle Bill's example. When you say build, he, you mean select your own system, not build, like not actually construct. Okay, sure, that's fine. Select select the pieces you're going to buy, like the mount and OTA and all, you know, the individual components of your overall 
imaging system. Uh, right. To me, I, that, to me, that's analogous to the back when the computer days, when you built your own computer, you weren't actually building the computer. Yeah. You were just assembling motherboards and hard drives and things like that. Um, but you said you built right. it because really what you did was just plug it all in and put it in a case. Um, that That's sort of what I, I mean by that. But you're right. Assembling is a more accurate term. Um, so, but those people that tend to do that, I think, are the super nerds, right? These are the ones who, who like are already uh, down the rabbit hole in, in amateur astronomy. So my question is, would, do you think that most people start with an all-in-one go-to system like a Celestron Next Star 5-inch or something, and then maybe, because you can't really add to that once you've bought one, right? You, you can put accessories on it, but you've bought an X-Star system, it's got its go-to capabilities. It's got its tripod. You know, maybe you can buy an equatorial. No, it it actually has an equatorial wedge ability on it. So, um, do you find most people start with those and then turn into super nerds, or do people? You know, what what do you think is the path there? Uh, no, super nerd. That's funny. Uh, I've called myself <laughs> that many times, but <laughs> well, you um, are a super nerd. Yeah, no, <laughs> you look marvelous. <laughs> yeah, no, I, look at this stuff, so I think that's fair. Um, yeah, I think that uh, we we don't we don't actually see what you're describing where most people start that way. Like when people want to get into astrophotography, you know, what we see more now than anything else is like social media is such a powerful tool, such a powerful vehicle for sharing information. And people are sharing this content that ends up by accident just being evergreen, right? It's like you can go on at two o'clock in the afternoon, you can go on at two o'clock in the morning, and you're still going to see the same data. You're still going to see the same images. And so it's like you can be on there and see a Brave Falls image cross your screen. And if nothing else, it's just curiosity gets peaked. What is that? Or Andrew McCarthy with the moon close up. And so when you start Mm -hmm. seeing it over and over, over time, you start to think that's not like a stock image. That's not just another image. That's a desktop background. I'm going to click on it and see what's going on. Then you realize this is an image this person took and they're taking other images like that every single clear night. And so then, you know, people's interest gets peaked and they want to start taking their own images. And we're seeing more people jump directly into the deep end saying, I want to capture my own images instead of starting with what's the most basic way to start, which is, you know, visual astronomy. That's interesting. No, that's very interesting. Um, So this is what you're exposed to. You used to be exposed to it through star parties and, you know, somebody had a telescope down the street where they were doing visual. So obviously that's what you've been exposed to. That's where you start. But now if the first thing you're exposed to is astrophotography, you're, you're not jumping into something else because you haven't been exposed to the visual side. You haven't gone to a star party. You've just been on Instagram and seen incredible astrophotography. All you've been exposed to is that. So but you are seeing people jump in the deep end then and go right away and try to replicate whatever equipment because everybody posts what equipment they use um, yeah, you know, to take those images. From people's first systems, I mean, literally, people's first systems, I've seen everything from, you know, $50 when they want a tabletop system that they just want to look through with the kids all the way up to very first system being a hundred thousand plus dollars for a full, you know, <laughs> system built in their backyard. It's going to be a world-class system. Like, I mean, I've seen it all and I've seen it all a lot. So it's, 
it just depends on where people jump in and how far they jump in and what their means are, you know, but sometimes people, and I get why it does this because astronomy is, you know, it's, it encompasses everything with a capital E, right? And so, you know, it's everything, it's, it's all human knowledge. It's all of existence, the universe, it's everything. It's all philosophy. It's everything rolled into one. And so once it grabs you, I understand why people, they jump in and they say, I want to, I want to explore everything I possibly can. I get it because I'm one of them, right? You're one of them. But, um, you know, when people have that bug, when they get that itch, it's, it's really easy to, to make the jump from this stuff has been around me my whole life and I've never explored it to I'm going to do whatever I can now to actually witness my place in the universe. Wow. That's, um, that, that seems to me that that's extremely surprising to me only because if I were, uh, if I were Celestron and or meet or some company that did the entry level go to all around telescopes, I'd be a little bit worried right now if people are going in through that alley. I mean, I'm, I know that you can buy individual things from these companies now, but, um, <clears throat> tell me if you think this statement is true. Sure. You can still buy, you, you can do very capable astrophotography and visual observing and save money by buying, say, a Celestron go-to type telescope, uh, whether it's the next star or whatever. Do you think that's a true statement? Yeah. You know what Celestron does so well um, is versatility. You know, I think like their Edge HD, for instance, I mean, it has to be, and maybe I'm missing something. I don't mean to leave anybody out, but it has to be, if not the most versatile telescope, it has to be one of them. Because you think about it, you can shoot it at its native, I think off the top of my head, man, I, sh- I should probably have this memorized, but it's either F10 or F11. I think it's F11 off the top of my head that, you know, that's perfect for like planetary and for viewing, you know, especially bright objects, things like the moon. It's like, man, you're going to have Which such Which system are you talking about? I'm sorry, I missed it. The Edge HD from Celestron. Oh, telescope. okay. Yeah. Yeah, it's a flat field corrected telescope. So it's great. It's great for visual, but it's also great for photography, right? And it comes um, with a mountain and system and everything. It's all, it's a, it's can, a complete system. Packages, so you can get them with like their CGX or CGXL mount, okay. um, or they have them with uh, the CPC if you want Altaz, which is more for visual just because it keeps the eyepiece in a much easier to reach area at all times. Whereas equatorial, sometimes you'll find yourself like laying on the ground in an awkward position trying to view. Um, so for visual, Altaz is generally preferred, but, um, you know, this telescope can also put a, you put a reducer on it. Now it's like F7. So you're doing deep space photography. You're gathering light much, much faster, getting all the nebulae, galaxies, that sort of thing. Or they have the fast star in it, which is like, you can unscrew the secondary mirror, pull it out, put a hyper star from star zona in this thing. And now it's like an F 2.2 system, like a Celestron Rasa, where you're doing wide field imaging at the fastest focal ratios of anything that's out there. And so while it's not going to be the ultimate performance in any one of those things, because it has a few things like, like a moving primary mirror. Um, it has, you know, those super fast F ratios are super critical focus. It makes tilt and other things really challenging. You can get a huge percentage of the quality um, through one telescope without a lot of the costs that go into, you know, very, very high end systems. 
Um, so it's it's extremely versatile. That's what they do so well. And that's where a lot of their innovation has come in, is making a telescope that's kind of a jack of all trades. Now, obviously, you can go out and you can build a system that can outperform it in any one of those things. But you're not going to build a system that's going to perf- outperform it in versatility. Okay, that's where I was trying to go with this. Because it sounds to me as if modern day go-to systems, like we're discussing now, are extremely capable and you could probably buy one of these and nothing else and still be relatively happy as an as an astrophotographer and take and get good results absolutely yeah what would have been like in the times that we're talking about where things used to really struggle to keep up with what people were trying to push the boundaries with 99 times out of 100 now the viewer or the imager is the limiting factor, not the system, which is right. exactly where you want it to be. Because yeah. that means you're, you've bought above your frustration curve, right? You yes. always want to be the limiting factor in your hobby. You want to be, well, if I want to get better, I just have to grow. Not, I've outgrown my equipment and it can't do any better. Right. I mean, it's no one listening to this podcast is just going to buy one telescope and say and call it good. But if you if you did and you bought one of these systems, I know from experience myself that the optics alone in these optical tube assemblies that you buy in any kind of complete system now are way better than anything that came in the decades before and at a much, much lower cost. So things like optics are a no-brainer. The electronics are a no-brainer because they all seem to work. You can get software updates. A lot of things are controlled by software. The only thing that I wonder about, and tell me what you think of this, are the quality of the drive systems in these Uh complete go-to system telescopes. What are they, what's your experience with them? Are they any good? Yeah, I I use them. I use them for a lot of things. Okay. I use them for satellite tracking. I use them for, um, you know, um, astrophotography, and they're phenomenal. I mean, they they didn't used to be. Um, there was a mount from Celestron that really struggled, called the CGE mount. That people, um, you know, there were some people that got really good ones and they loved. They absolutely loved them. But there were some people. There were a lot of returns with that mount. Um, and Meads had its share as well, but all in all, I feel like these companies have taken those experiences and they've they've kept innovating their products to make things that just perform. And you know, it's like companies don't want any more than the customer. The company does not want to sell a boomerang, right? Something that you sell and it comes flying back because it doesn't work. <laughs> like, companies don't want that. Is that That's what not you call those? <laughs> it's not in the best interest of the company or the customer. And it's certainly not in the best interest in the relationship between the two to do yeah, that. And so right. when it happens, it's not like the company's looking at it like, ha, 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 I tricked you. They're right. feeling that pain just as much because their their intent is to sell products that stay sold and that get the word out that they make incredible products. And so every time they've ever had, the best thing that can happen to a company after the fact is that they made something that didn't work out well because that's where all the lessons are learned and that's how they end up making incredible products. It's just during that time where it's happening, it's really painful for both sides, the customer and the company. Right. Yeah. Especially if, I mean, these companies have been around a while, but new ones that start out, that's especially critical. Um, going yeah, forward, you, you want to, you look at like, I mean, we're talking about Celestron right now, but you right. look at a lot of the companies, even making harmonic drive mounts and other things, they've all learned from the experiences of each other and the failures of past companies in trying to do that. You know, when, when we first bought the company, the, the cheapest harmonic drive mount we sold was like $200,000. It was a Kronos mount. 
um, who has since gone out of business, I believe. Um, but the, um, and if that's not true, I'm sorry for saying that. I, I believe it's true, <laughs> but, um, the reports of their demise are greatly exaggerated yeah, or something. Yeah, I'm, we'll I'm pretty sure it. <laughs> I believe it's true enough that I can say it. The, um, <laughs> but now people are getting, I mean, I just bought a harmonic drive mount to test here and, um, you know, they're $2,000 for a harmonic right. drive mount instead of $200,000. And that's what I was talking about, how quality has gone up, but price has come down. And both have been so drastic that the cliff, you know, not only the learning curve, which was a cliff before, but one you just didn't want to have to climb. Now it's like the, the opposite is true, where it's just this downhill slope where you can get incredible product at a really inexpensive price. And I don't think what Bill was alluding to before, I think he's, he's spot on for the past. He's wrong about the present and the future. And I think, yeah, I think that's the conclusion here is that <clears throat> it's no longer true that these complete go-to systems yes. that you would buy and all in one in box, CH used to come in a trunk um, and, you know, all of that uh, stuff uh, being inferior to a uh, build your own or assemble your own component system. Yeah. Um, and if you want the proof, go, go look at Instagram, look at Facebook, look at Astro Ben, look at any of these things and, you know, type in cgxl mount or cgx mount or any of these packages yeah. that come yeah. from these companies or meads or orion or any of these companies selling packages even zwo they have a, a harmonic drive mount and their cameras look at the packages and look at the data look at the images that people are getting with them you'll see multiple apods nasa apod awards from every single one of them from packaged systems yeah and all of this, I think, owes itself to better over the decades. Uh, we've we, it, it benefits from better materials, uh, better um, better construction or a, 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 what do you call it, manufacturing techniques, um, and also these ideas of new mounts and ways to drive things. Especially before, you just had a worm gear, and it was all about, well, gee, how good is your worm gear uh, machined? Uh, and nowadays, it's you know you've got these different kinds of mounts, all of which are amazing in their design and they're implemented really well. And we've gotten to a point now, I think, especially with optical, optical manufacturing techniques where you can build a really high quality telescope for pretty cheap. Now, I don't know if it's because glass has gotten cheaper or if it's just gotten, you know, so much better to scale these manufacturers. I don't know what it is, but the, I'm astonished at how inexpensive large, refractive elements uh, have become that you you can you can get some really good stuff for pretty cheap relatively cheap anyway yeah so well, the hobby has expanded a lot you know if you had to produce one 4k television and it's the only one you're ever going to produce ever there is the technology doesn't exist and that's all you're going to produce is this yeah. one 70 inch 4k television that thing's yeah. gonna be extremely expensive to produce probably True. millions of dollars you know after everything's all said and done but when it's something True. that everybody has and everybody is aware of, and I'm not saying this hobby, this hobby certainly isn't in every household across you know the world, but like I said, social media is a powerful vehicle. And the reason, I think there's an, there's an innate interest across the world in space and exploring our place in the universe, but there wasn't an awareness of the possibility of doing it in our lifetime. And yeah. that that's available now and that pe people are finding it through social media mostly. And that awareness has given the hobby and the companies inside the hobby the ability to scale 
and to start producing higher quality at lower prices. Right. Okay. Well, I think we I think we nailed that uh, that topic. I hope that helps, Uncle Bill. I think this is in so many ways. You know, we we said it a billion times. This is a golden age of of astronomy. Certainly, amateur. Well, Bill's such a great contributor to like everything astronomy too. I hope we answered his question well. I know he's like really big on the Discord server. He always shows up in my streams, and he's always really he helps me moderate so many things. So thank you, Uncle yeah, Bill, for no, contributing. And um, and so the next thing I want to get to is a um, is a astronomy uh, feedback we got from Paul. I'm not going to give his last name, but he emails me on a regular basis after the show and tells me what he thinks of it. And and uh, he was listening. This one, this email is back from January, so it's quite a it's right after we started picking up again, and it was our first episode back. And he okay. writes, "Glad to have you back." I just found the podcast again and I'm working my way through the revival episode. One thing I wanted to weigh in on, I think you both have it completely flipped with the is a galaxy real if it's from millions of years ago question. I would say that all observed light is the present, not just practically, but fundamentally. For example, imagine that you're looking at a galaxy that's millions of light years away. Yes, that light started its journey millions of years ago, but imagine if the whole galaxy just disappeared while you were looking at it. It would be physically impossible for you to know that it was gone for millions of years, and thus the galaxy won't disappear for millions of years from your perspective. It's not just that you won't know it disappeared for millions of years. It literally won't have happened until the light reaches you. This is because it's impossible for the galaxy's disappearance to have consequences until the information has had time to reach you, and the impossibility of a consequence means the the cause cannot have happened yet. If the theories, even if theories somehow don't support what I'm saying, all light that you see is philosophically and practically the present. It's intuitive and helps. And it's intuitive and helpful to think of light from distant galaxies as the past, but it's really your local relative present, just like all other light. And he wanted to clarify that for us. And so my response would be, yes, that is, that is what I thought we were saying, (laughs) but maybe we didn't. Um, So when, when you look at something, uh, through your telescope, the night that you're out, you're actually seeing light that left that galaxy millions or billions, however long, uh, however, whatever its distance is, it took the light that long to travel there. And I'm trying to remember what we said during that episode that said it's not there now. What we may have meant was when we said that the galaxy that you're looking at could actually be gone by now is, is true. Uh, in an in an absolute sense, that that galaxy at its location at that time is in fact gone; it doesn't exist anymore. But we won't know that, nor will we experience it until that light reaches us, or that absence of light in the case of a galaxy blinking. Let's say it just blinks out. So you're right in the sense that for us, in our frame of reference, we would that galaxy does still exist for all intents and purposes. Even though at that moment, while we were looking at it, it may have just blinked out of existence and it won't have. And and you're also right when you say that for all practical purposes, for us, that galaxy is still there. It is actually physically a reality. That's also true. It is only when we see the light from that that difference, that 
death of that galaxy. Galaxies don't just blink out, but you know, we'll use that as an example. Um, when, when it, when it does finally blink out, boom, the galaxy is, is dead for us. And so with so many things that have to do with relativity, your frame of reference matters. And I think your point, your overall point is that light carries information. And as long as you are seeing the light from any of these distant objects, it still physically exists in your universe, in your frame of reference. If millions of years ago that galaxy died, and if we suddenly are looking at a galaxy and say through our telescopes and it blinks out of existence, it doesn't happen. This is an example uh, that it suddenly is just not there anymore. That event would really have happened millions of years ago. And we would only have just begun to experience it. So you're right when you say that, Paul. Um, and I thought that's what we said, but we might not have. Do you remember well, think, that discussion? I think that, I think that Paul's saying, uh, well, first off, Paul, I'm sorry that Tony took so long to get back to your message. Um, <laughs> I responded to his email. Fault. I just didn't get it on the podcast until now. <laughs> it's entirely Tony's fault. I had nothing to do with it. Um, <laughs> Thanks for throwing me on the bus, but, man. But um, so that's the friendly part. The, the unfriendly part is I think I disagree with both of you. Um, I don't think our individual experience defines the experience of anything else. And so just because this is when we're experiencing something does not mean that is the present. Um, because you could have multiple, I mean, it's the whole, like if a tree falls in the woods and you're not around to hear it, did it happen? Sure, of course, because someone else could be there right now and they heard it just because I wasn't there doesn't mean it did. And if I'm two miles away and I hear that later doesn't mean it happened right when I hear it. It means it happened when it happened. And so if you had people staggered every you know million light years away and they start to see this um, this explosion of this galaxy happen, it happened when it happened. It happened a million years before the first person sees it. In the um, galaxy's frame did. of reference, yes, it did. You're yeah, right. Yeah, exactly. And so like, because other things in the local area can still continue to evolve during that time, there's still, like it still exists, it's still there and it's still evolving through that time. And so when we experience, I don't think is as relevant as when something actually happens. Um, and so I just don't, I understand like philosophically where where he's coming from and I'd agree like for if we're going to put ourselves in a vacuum and say our experiences are defined by only only this limited information, then sure, absolutely. But I think that things essentially happen when they happen and we experience them independently of whatever that timing is. Right. And so uh, we are in agreement. It's just that you've, you've switched the, the, uh, the reference frame. If you're saying from a global perspective, from the unit, from the perspective of the universe as a whole, that galaxy blinked out when it blinked out end of story, right? That it sure. was an actual reality. It happened at that moment in time. And it doesn't matter but, if we never find out, but and it doesn't the, matter if we find out in a, a million years, right? Right. But there's something else at work here. And that is because that is the, the scales at which we're working with. The universe is so large and light can only travel so fast. The idea of relativity says that no information can go faster than the speed of light. So what, what Paul is saying and what I'm agreeing with is that the, the galaxy in our reference frame 
is still actually in existence. It hasn't stopped existing yet because we, uh, the, the information of its death hasn't reached us. And it isn't until that happens that, that we start to experience the death of that galaxy. And that's the, that's a consequence of the universe being so large and light only being able to travel so far. We cannot know anything beyond light, the speed of light travel. So, that's what relativity says. So we we are yeah no I agree stuck. with that. That is a boundary beyond which we can our go. frame of reference. I yes, agree with that. Entirely. That's right. That's all we're saying. So we're agreeing. You're just you're just talking from a different reference frame, and you're I'm just right too. Because it's important to disagree with you at some point in every <laughs> single conversation. You, <laughs> you just yeah I just, okay. I just tend to disagree. You know right. Yes, I know. We need to. Uh, it's it conflict. It, it creates uh, creates tension, right? <laughs> Can't be agreeing on everything, right? That's boring. Yeah. <laughs> I'm a nihilist. Yeah. Here we go. Here we go, man. Oh, I that's like a trigger for you, isn't it? I just don't think it's true, I'm, but we. Went I'm a happy that nihilist. No, I am. It is. Yeah. Um, okay. One more thing to get to from listener feedback, and then we'll call it a show. Um, I want to, there was a, there was a nice thread on the discord server regarding, um, uh, Andrew McCarthy's, uh, photographs. We talked about that, uh, last, uh, episode and we, and there was some controversy about it. Ebone, good friend. He's also on from the YouTube channel. He said, uh, says the following, I just listened to the podcast or to the episode about the shed you were building and Andrew McCarthy's photographs. Let me tell you, it was quite interesting and entertaining as well. Thank you. Ebone. Um, I do have some comments though, uh, on the nature of astrophotography or any kind, uh, let's say aesthetic, aesthetic expression. Let me slow down. I find silly that a lot of people criticize Andrew's pictures for not being realistic. As Andrew himself said, and you actually pointed out, he is achieving the art of photography aimed at the things in our cosmos. This is perfectly valid. You might like, uh, you might like or not his pictures, but you have to concede that his pictures are pieces of art. Maybe some envious astrophotographers might criticize this way of doing an astrophoto on the basis that 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 is our task to picture things as they actually are Uh, but how do we know how a space object really looks like so we are only allowed to picture it in the visible so are we only allowed to picture it on the visible spectrum only Uh, what about the various hubble telescope palettes are they invalid because they reassign the colors in order to reveal more information what about jwst what color should we assign to ir images or to uv to x-ray to gamma ray or to radio this in order, uh, th- this in order, all of this in order to make the pictures result look more natural, and um, and he says, <clears throat> but I think all of this is a pointless discussion. But anyway, for example, I have th- this is this is an interesting thing I want to share with you. I have to shoot my pictures from a balcony of my home in Mexico City. Actually, no backyard, no front yard, just a balcony. My border class is almost nine. I need to use light pollution or narrowband filters, yes and yes, all the time. And many targets I love cannot be shot from my place, such as the Dark Shark Nebula or Rho Ophiakai. Um, So what's my point here? I decided not to compete for the best picture ever. I decided to take pictures of targets that have some interesting astronomical facts, such as the Seagull Nebula with its Bowshock Star, or the Crescent Nebula with its... 
um, WR crazy star. I don't know what that means. Um, and the idea is to explain these facts through the picture. That is what makes this hobby amazing. I think. What an incredible comment, man. That is, isn't that cool? (laughs) That's why I read the whole thing. Yeah, I I love it. So, so well said. Thank you for sending that in. That's amazing. And I agree with what you're saying about just about all of it. Um, you know, and, and the attitude, I think this, this attitude, what'd you say the name was? His name is Ebone. I, I, his name is Boniker, um, but I, okay. I, I happen to know him from yeah. uh, just, YouTube. I call him Ebone. Just attitude about the whole thing because I agree. It's like there's so much value in these things beyond just capturing a picture of raw reality. In fact, I mean, art. if art did that, it wouldn't be art in the first place. And that's, that's the power of photography in general is taking everyday experience and creating artistic expression, right? It's like, it gives you this possibility of creating something that gives you a, like a perspective to share. It's not just cataloging. It's a perspective. It's like, like I imagine in my mind, every time I see these things going on, on Andrews or Trevor's or anybody, you get a lot of jealous people about anybody that's like really pushing the boundaries and doing things well. I even saw there was like a 17 year old guy, maybe 18. And um, it's the only picture I've ever posted on Instagram that wasn't mine. It was of his comet. And he really pushed the processing on the comet and everybody lost their minds over it. They were so up in arms at this kid because they hated the way he processed this image. And I just think like, I wish I could go to like Florence, Italy with them and stand in front of Michelangelo's The David, you know, (laughs) and hear them all say like, that's not a man. That thing's made of stone. Men aren't made of stone. It's (laughs) not even breathing. You know, what value? It's not it's not a man. What was Michelangelo doing? He's an idiot. It's not a man. You know, and it's just like that's that's all I hear every time I hear these people lose their mind over nonsense. It's like. What are you talking about? How can you miss the point of the entire thing to point out the obvious of, you know, like this is not this is not exactly what you see. I know. Go look at the night sky. Does anything you look at look like this mm-hmm. <laughs> at all? Go yeah. look at the night sky. Just go outside and stand stand outside and look up. Is this what you're seeing? Okay. Then that point's already it's already been said. It's already explored. Like shut up. But people experience the universe and share it with people. Yeah, you know it's funny. I think the harumpher class in this hobby <clears throat> is um, is declining. I think that they're they're a minority, but unfortunately, like all trolls, you know they're a loud minority, and so we tend to hear and 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 take offense to a lot of what they're saying. But the vast majority, I think, share Ebone's view, where you know you just you know this is a pointless discussion. You know, let the man take some astrophotos and enjoy them or not, but shut the hell up. You know, and and uh, what I find most interesting about what he said, though, was what he does in Mexico City from his balcony. He realizes that the reality of his his night sky is such that he's not going to get a lot of the objects he loves. He's not going to be able to to image them, even with narrow band filters. So he takes things that he can get that are scientifically interesting. And to him, that is the. Uh, the value of his of his astrophotos it might be hard to take a dark sky quality super processed image of the orion nebula but he can get you know these these uh bow shock nebulas from the seagull nebula like he was talking about and he can he can do that and so by 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 working with what you have you can make a real name for yourself, I think. And certainly all of us need to remember that, right? I mean, not everybody is going to be recognized on the level of some of these astrophotographers, but that's okay. You know, 
ask yeah, yourself not, a couple it's of. It's not by chance. You know, we were just talking about the tree in the woods falling. You don't have yeah. a tree in the woods fall and create an Andrew McCarthy. Right? Yeah, it's yeah, fine. yeah. I mean, that, a lot of hard work goes into it, and nobody wants yeah. to minimize that. But at the same time, a lot of luck happened to these guys too to get them noticed. I mean, it's not all skill. A lot of it is circumstance. You know what, and their own abilities to communicate and to network with other people. You may not have those skills, but it certainly doesn't mean you can't become an accomplished astrophotographer in your own right. I agree. Especially if you're taking stuff that you just, you know, want to take pictures of. I mean, damn. That's, that's you know? one thing I will say that I've, I like, I have seen a lot of. I'll be scrolling through different astro photos sometimes, just looking at people's work, and I'll see, I'll see these images that are just truly world class images. And I, this happens a lot. And then I'll look at the account, and there will be like 25 followers on this yeah. account. And so you have a lot of people that I, I agree with you, Tony. It's like. They can be these people that have really mastered their craft. And you see this with art. You see this with everything, music. Um, and I mean, go to Nashville and just walk into any <laughs> random pub or bar. These are world-class musicians that yeah. nobody knows their name. And yeah. it's just because, like you said, there's a lot of luck that goes into it. There's a lot of like skills outside of just the craft that you're doing, including like networking and all of those things. Um, but you know, it does happen. And I've seen a lot of accounts that when you get there, I'm just like, how, how is this not a million follower account, million subscriber account when the images are this good? Um, so it definitely is the case and it does happen. Yeah. For me, the, the, the sign of excellence, and one of the things I find is a breakthrough in this hobby. And one of the things I think is the, is the, one of the frontiers today, because everybody can take an astro photo now is one of the frontiers is what can, you know, how can we push these things to get signals from the night sky that we ordinarily could never hope to see, uh, in decades past. For example, I would love to take us, I would like to automate my telescope in such a way that I could actually make transit measurements. I would love to be able to do that. Nothing fancy, nothing, nothing pretty about that, but it's, to, it's technically challenging and something I would like to do. And I would, you know, it's not about the aesthetics at all. It's about just pushing the, the limits of what we can observe here. And that's, I think in the spirit of what Ebone's doing with his with his stuff uh, from Mexico city. So remember that. I mean, it's like, yes, we, if you're after fame and fortune, that's a different, that's a different topic, but you, you certainly can rival almost any of the best out there um, yourself with just a little bit of diligence and some, and some, and some patience and luck too. Um, but I, I don't know. I just, I just, I find the harumpher class, you know, in, in our, in our hobby, tends to dominate the discussion, you know, and we need to just basically ignore that crap from now on. We're just all, take we're all guilty of it. We're all guilty of it. I think to a certain degree, I just think the, um, we all view the world through different lenses. And this is something that surprisingly, this was the number one thing after I did the, the Ted talk in Nashville, the TEDx talk for uh, TEDx Nashville, which actually is supposed to be out this in like the next five days, they got pushed back multiple times because they said they wanted to promote it. Um, but it's supposed to be out, they said mid-March. So Oh, cool. Close. Keep an eye out for that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but it's one of the things, and you'll see like at the, the end of it, I talk about this a little bit, this exact thing, but I talk about how, you know, we, we view the world through different lenses and it's really easy to get caught up in the only one that we know, that perspective that we've decided is ours, whether it's scientific or philosophic or, you know, we view, you view the world through faith. Um, 
or or even just the artistic perspective. Some people go out and they they stare at the night sky. Look at Kat Machen, man. I mean, she. I just watched a um, a presentation she did inside a planetarium dome where they put all her images up, and it was literally the entire thing was about the beauty of the universe, and that's how she views the universe. And if you're caught up in what's scientifically accurate only is this the right shade of red for this thing you lose all the value of every other perspective and so surprisingly after the talk the vast majority of the people that came up to me and were were talking about it that was the thing they were talking about it it was like so is it okay to view the universe through faith and it's like well I, I, who am I to tell you no? Like, why, why would I or anyone else tell you no? Of course it is. And in, in my opinion, of course it is. View it however it is you view it. And, um, you know, I, I think make the most out of it because regardless of whichever lens it is, whether it's philosophic, scientific, artistic, or through faith, whatever it is, it doesn't matter or any other thing. It's like you're going to find the deepest well for enjoyment and human experience by looking out into the universe. That's, that is the deepest well for human experience that we can find uh, currently. And so I think like whatever it is you have, go all the way down that rabbit hole and explore it because there's, there, it's a never ending well, at least for anyone that I've ever met to, to that exploration and to the enjoyment for whichever lens it is you choose. And I'd say, and try not to step on anybody else's views and, and experiences because I think those perspectives are one of the most interesting things about it. I mean, Tony, you and I have completely different experiences. That's why you're one of my best friends in the world, man. It's because <laughs> I love listening to you talk because you have such a different perspective than I do. If you're looking up, folks, and it brings you peace, you're doing it right. So, you know, just just don't stop doing that. Whatever lens you're using, uh, look up gather peace, whatever, in whatever way you can and enjoyment, fulfillment, it all comes to us just by looking up. So I think that's a great way to end this podcast. And so thank you for your feedback, everybody. Keep it coming. Um, I have a question for you guys. I want you to try and answer for me and I will make this a a topic of a future uh, podcast. And that is, do you guys use smart telescopes. And I mean, all of the ones that are out there now, um, including, I'm going to include cell phones in this now, because I just found out that Samsung has an astrophotography, the latest Samsung Galaxy has an astrophotography mode. I could never afford one of those. So if you have one and have any experience with it, I would love to hear what you think about it. Um, and, and if you have purchased any of the smart telescopes that are out there, Stellina, uh, EV scope, there's actually some new ones coming out now from from Dwarf Labs. I just heard about them. Um, And so if you have experience with any of that, let me know, because we're going to make that a topic, I think, of a future podcast. I want to talk smart telescopes with Dustin. Um, That's a thing, you know, they call them that, smart telescopes. I didn't realize that. Yeah, it's it's super cool, man. I mean, (laughs) a lot of people, a lot of people, again, that uh, don't really love the direction of it. I think it's amazing, including the cell phone thing. I wish yeah. we could explore the entire universe from our cell phones. It'd be amazing. I'd, I'd do it well, all these, day. Yeah, I guess. I don't know. Does I don't know. I've never, I can't afford an iPhone either, but I heard they have an astrophotography mode in it as well. So I'd like to hear how people are using these, like you lay it up against a rock or something and you 
take pictures of the yeah. night sky. I yeah, think that's how it works. Exposures with it and stacked images, pretty cool. It's all it's all stuff. It's all software. So it's cool that they're doing this. I'd like to know if you guys have any experience with it. All right, Dustin, I'm going to close this episode out. I hope you guys have a great weekend. This is a Friday for us, so um, I'll post this early next week. Thank you all so much for listening. On behalf of Dustin Gibson, I'm Tony Darnell. And as always, keep looking up. <laughs>